For the past few weeks now, we've been working through a text known uh, as a book, the book of Philippians in the New Testament, and as we've been discussing, this book in the New Testament is actually a letter written from a guy named the Apostle Paul to this new church in Philippi, which is um, part of a Roman colony back in the ancient world, and today it sits kind of in North Greece area uh, in, a, in a modern map. And it was Paul, the apostle, who founded that church there in Philippi. And he founded it when he brought this message of the love of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that message began to transform people's lives. Um, And just a few stories about some of the lives that were transformed. This is from Acts 16 that kind of tells the narrative version of this story. So there's this little girl there who was oppressed by dark uh, spiritual forces and she was enslaved by uh, by some, some people. And the ministry of Paul... Uh, Through the ministry of Paul, Jesus released power to uh, unshackle her from the spiritual oppression, and she was freed from her human masters and from her spiritual masters. Then there was Lydia, this lady who is a prominent businesswoman, a seller of expensive purple cloth. Uh, She, against Roman social norms, was given a high-ranking position of authority in the church. And in fact, sociologist uh, Rodney Stark argues that it was the church that advanced the place of women in the ancient world because in Roman society, um, there was no place for them to have authority over men or equality with men. And so in the church only could they hold positions of equality and authority alongside their male counterparts. And so Lydia would come to host the local church of Philippi in her house, in her estate. And there's this other time that Paul was incarcerated um, in Philippi by Roman soldiers who were watching over him, and the Holy Spirit intervenes and miraculously shakes the ground and pops off his his shackles like a Jedi mind trick kind of thing. They just pop off, and he's free, and all of a sudden he notices that his Roman guard is going to commit suicide because it was very dishonorable to let prisoners go. Paul and Silas, they're about ready to escape. They see this about to happen. The guy's got his, his sword out, and he says, wait a minute. And Paul, at, at risk of being reincarcerated, goes back into there and, and stops the man from committing suicide and says, hey, this is a God thing. This isn't your fault. And the man is so moved by the miracle of what happened and by the grace of God through Paul that he there commits his life to Christ. And then he has his whole family baptized and they begin to follow Jesus. Now, I give this introduction Because before we dive into the section of Philippians we're going to look at today, this introduction reminds us of two things. First, Paul and the Philippians, they loved each other. They loved each other. Paul had brought the gospel, and they had opened their hearts, and together, Paul and the Philippian church became partners, living like Christ and sharing the good news of Christ with others. Second, the Philippian church, this this little church that was made up of people like little emancipated slave girls and Roman soldiers and wealthy businesswomen and all sorts of different people, they had a life-changing experience with Jesus. And it wasn't like Paul's life-changing experience with Jesus where he met with, like literally met with the risen and reigning Jesus on the Damascus Road. No, their experience with Jesus is a lot more like our experience with Jesus, if you get my drift. It, the scriptures came alive for them. And the Spirit confirmed in their hearts that what Paul was saying and the apostles were saying about Jesus was true. 
And they had this, this strangely warmed heart, this, this sense that this is real, that Jesus is real, and we are all in on it. And so when Paul is imprisoned, likely in Rome, and the Philippian church is concerned about his well-being, he wrote the letter of Philippians, the one that we've been studying together, to encourage them and to have hope to continue in their partnership in the gospel. Now last week, we looked at Philippians 2, 1 through 4, where Paul calls, um, calls us toward unity through singular focus on the mission of Jesus and on humility toward one another. And as we looked at that, like, it is so difficult. It is not something that we can just do naturally. And so what Paul suggests we do is what's in the text for today. So if you're able, I encourage you to stand as we consider this next part of Paul's letter. It's Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this attitude. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be privileged or utilized. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, and being made in the likeness of people, he, uh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Oh, Holy Spirit, thank you for this word. Thank you for your servant, Paul, who lived this and wrote it down to encourage the church, including us. And I pray for revelation today, that you would inspire us, that you would change our desires to want to be like our Lord in all his ways. Amen. You may be seated. Have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, what follows after that phrase is one of the most theologically rich passages in the entire New Testament. I am not joking when I tell you entire doctoral dissertations have been written on whether or not this passage is a hymn or a poem or an original by Paul. There are tomes of books written on this word kenosis, and what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? I am serious when I tell you there's bookshelves to be written, and I've done some labor for you because I love you. And um, for the past few weeks leading up into preaching on this text, I've read hundreds of pages of questions that scholars have about Philippians. And to be honest, most of them are questions that the Philippians didn't seem to have, nor could they even conceive of them as being valid questions, but I did it anyway, and here's the reason why. I think that I feel responsible to do this because there is a ton of things that Paul's original audience take for granted that you and I just have no clue about. Like, so one clear example is that Paul's original audience spoke and read Greek. We don't do that very well, right? And so, like, to, to take this text and to try and translate it into English or to read in English, we're, we just miss so much. And so trying to figure out 
what's going on there. But, but beyond the, the language barrier that we have, I think the bigger barrier is the cultural references wrapped into the text, the historical context, uh, and popularly held like pop culture and religious beliefs that people just had that were in the air that we just don't know about because we're in the 21st century. Now, the fact is, just like if you were here last week, we discussed this, people don't change by simply knowing more information, okay? Information helps us to build a context. Information helps us to know, like, what is true and what isn't true. Uh, smoking will kill you. That is, that is true. A lot of people still smoke because they just want to, right? Like, it, the information doesn't make you do it or not do it, but it, it helps us to know, like, here are the, guide, the guidelines. So, information helps us to know what is true and isn't true. Information is vital in so much as it's a vehicle for bringing clarity and truth and substance to a person or to a story. Information alone, though, will never motivate us to change because at our core, humans are motivated by what we want to do, by what we desire. And one of the things that humans greatly desire, greatly desire, is to be like those people that we look up to. We greatly desire to please those people that we respect. We greatly desire to be affirmed by people we respect and love. So just like most other kids, I looked up to my dad. And when I was two or three, I remember my dad coming home after snorkeling and scuba diving. He was a fish biologist. He had all these fish biology friends. And so he would come home from snorkeling and scuba diving with crab and with with octopus and, and, and fish and different things. And I remember him wiggling in and out of this thick wetsuit that was suitable for the cold Puget Sound waters. And sometimes when he was cleaning up, I would find my way into his wetsuit. I think, I think Lucy has a photo of that. And I, I still love the smell of neoprene and salt water. I don't know, there's something about it that, you know, so I, now, I just wanted to be close and to do the things that dad liked to do. Okay, or, or, or there's, there's things like mowing the lawn. Like information tells me that there's grass and that it grows and that if you own lawn, you should cut it if you're a good neighbor. But that doesn't make me want to mow the lawn, right? But relationships do. And so like when I was little, if dad was cutting the grass, I wanted to be there. I wanted to be like him, doing the things that I thought would make me like my dad and to make me liked by my dad. So there's the other picture. He, eventually, he just got me the bubble mower, and now I'm off on my own doing my thing. Okay, enough cuteness. Thank you, Lucy. Um, <laughs> remember my introduction to this sermon. The Philippians loved Paul, and so they trusted him, and they trusted what he's writing to them, a and they had experienced the love and the grace of Jesus to such a degree that they gave up their pagan affiliations and lifestyle in order to follow Jesus because they desired him. They looked up to him. They thought, his way of life, I want to do that. I want to wiggle into his wetsuit. I want to get the bubble mower and follow Jesus. And so when Paul writes, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, you know, the people are probably thinking, yeah, like we love him and we want to be like him and thank you for reminding us what he's like. 
And I think that the real task for us in the 21st century, hearing this second and third hand after thousands of years, right? I think the real task is for us not just to live vicariously through the Philippians, like, oh, they love Jesus. I ought to love Jesus. I feel bad that I don't love Jesus like they love Jesus. Am I a bad person? (laughs) Isn't that like, okay, isn't that sometimes what happens? Like, am I, I'm supposed to feel something more than I really feel. I, I think that, the, that what the call is for us is to be enamored with Jesus ourselves. Like, to have a real life with him. To encounter him and what he's about and to, to, to desire his way of being in the world, his way of being human, more than what, like, the American dream has to offer. Or more than what the commercials on TV have to offer or the latest TikTok video has to offer. Thankfully, I think that this text today shows us a God who is not only praiseworthy, but is worthy of our love and our imitation. So get out your bubble mowers with me, and let's follow in our Father's footsteps. Let's begin with this, with Jesus. Paul clearly wants us to look at Jesus as the one who's worthy of our love and devotion, and beyond that, worthy of our desire. Right now, Keely Frazier's getting ready to do her Dancing for Joy performance, and our awesome youth are going to go support their friend. So thanks, you guys. Yep. Yep. In the Greco-Roman world, there were t- uh, the types of men who were put forward as heroes and as m- imitation-worthy um, were the types of men, the, the types of men who are held up as what a true man ought to be, or as masculine, or as the real deal. You know what they were like? They're pretty much all narcissistic, arrogant, violent, sexually promiscuous, and they're either human men or they're gods or demigods in the mythology. That's, that's what's put forward as this is what it's like to be a real man. And it wasn't just the Greek or Roman epics you know, like, it wasn't just Homer and, and all of these. It, it was these ideas from, the, from mythology and from poetry, they seep into the culture, into our, our real stories. And so if you're raised in that world reading epic poems that exalt strategic, passionate, violent leaders when you're a kid, like Alexander the Great used to read those things when he was a kid. Well, that's what you get. That's what you end up growing up to desire. That's the model you say, I want to be like that. Now listen to what N.T. Wright has to say about the context of Paul's letter. I'm quoting now. In Paul's world, the closest equivalent to Alexander was the Emperor Augustus who had put an end to the long-running Roman Civil War and brought peace to the whole known world. It wasn't long before many grateful subjects came to regard him as divine. The power of military might, the immense organizational skills required to hold the empire together, made this for them the natural conclusion that Augustus must be divine. And other rulers did their best to copy this model. And that is what heroic leadership looked like in the first century, end quote. Now, if you're one of the Roman citizens who were born into the right family at the right time, then the peace of Rome that Augustus brought to you was pretty darn close to salvation for you compared to all of the civil wars and the 
economy being in the tank and always wondering about warring invaders coming in. Like, if you were an elite, this was it. This was, ah, the Pax Romana, there's peace for me. But how was that peace won? That is always an important question. We've talked about this over and over again, how the ends don't justify the means. How did Augustus win this peace of Rome? Well, it was won at the utter slaughter of thousands, tens of thousands of men and women and children. It was won at the enslavement of entire families who were brought broken apart for their pieces and sold for the highest bidder at the marketplace. It was won, this peace was won by afflicting fear and heavy taxation without representation. That really ruffles American feathers, right? Uh, it, it, it was won by, by authoritarian, authoritarian governors who were tasked with two things. Make sure the taxes keep flowing to Rome, to Mother Rome, and put down any rebellions and I'll just keep you in power. And in many ways, it's not so different from our own ideals of the American dream. We say we don't want a totalitarian leader, but it seems like every election cycle, we tend to put so many hopes and dreams on our candidates, and we want them to change everything for us when we'll blame everything on them when things go wrong, right? So it's like, okay, we, we say we don't want a totalitarian leader, but we love the idea of us being independently wealthy and secure and comfortable and free. We want cheap products, right? But we don't want to really ask where they come from or how they're made. We want cheap fuel, amen? I want cheap fuel, but without asking too many questions about what, where it comes from. And we want to be honored without too much inconvenience, right? This is the, the, the 15 seconds of fame on our TikTok and YouTube channels and all of this stuff. We, just, we want to be known, but we don't really want to do a lot of work. And what's interesting is that our own mythologies that we create in the, in the West, I think they're heavily influenced by Christ and Christianity. And I, I think a great example is just, I'll pick a pop culture reference because that's where it hits the most people in a room. Uh, in the Marvel Universe, you know, there's the, the, the story arc of Iron Man. So if you don't know him, he's just the, Tony Stark is the character. He's a brilliant, arrogant, selfish, alpha male who is a multi-multi-billionaire, and he makes that money off of being an arms creator and dealer. And he seems to have it all. I mean, this guy's got mansions and cars and relationships and personal freedom and even pers- uh, a personal jet, which is like the ultimate American icon of freedom. Like, I can go anywhere I want, whenever I want. And when he invents his Iron Man suit, right, it protects him from harm while he uses its power to fight crime and save the world and all this kind of stuff. And he brings a sort of peace to to the world or to the country, but it comes at a great cost because anytime Iron Man is like blowing stuff up, like he's, there's serious collateral damage, like buildings falling down and other people getting killed, but Marvel never shows you that stuff. But people are like dying all around while he uses this suit of power. And by the end of the story arc, I mean, it's an investment. It's like 20-some films, right? It's ridiculous. Uh, When the writers are trying to tie in all the storylines of these superheroes, the only way that made sense to them is to have Tony Stark, Iron Man, sorry if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, he gives himself sacrificially in death so that the world might live against this great enemy who would, it would be certain death if if that enemy wasn't defeated. 
Isn't that interesting? Like, there's not a more creative way to do it. We just keep recycling these Christocentric tropes, the cruciform person who gives their life, right? Um, okay, if you're a little bit older and you still are into superheroes, think of the 70s and 80s, the Christopher Reeve, the real Superman movies. In my humble opinion, Superman 2 was the by, par, by, by far the best one. It's the one where, where Superman goes into this machine and in order, there's these like alien invaders and they're just as strong as he is and so he gives up his power. He empties himself of his Superman powers because they promise that they'll save the world, that they won't destroy the world. And then stuff happens, it's rad. <laughs> Star Wars freaks, same stuff. I mean, Obi-Wan buys time in, in A New Hope. And then Vader in, in Return of the Jedi, right? He, like, gives himself to, like, save his son and the whole world. You guys, it's the same stuff over and over again. And it's not just people giving their lives up for a cause. Like, like a, you know, anybody would give up their life for, a, you know, a, a friend or a, or a son or daughter or a child or something like that. But it, this is people divesting themselves of their powers rather than seeking self-preservation. And that's the key. And in this text, Paul reminds us that Jesus was co-equal with God. That's a bold statement in the first century, in any century. He reminds us that Jesus is co-equal with God, and yet rather than leveraging that power that he has in himself to zap enemies, be a great superhero. I mean, Jesus could do anything rather than doing it the way a lot of us might do it. He emptied himself. And it's not that he actually, like, became not God anymore, as if you could just, like, pour out your divinity on the floor like, like, like water or something. It's not, it's not like that, but it's, it's like he didn't consider his equality with God as something to be leveraged for his own privilege or use, to his own benefit, that's what Paul's getting at in this passage. That Jesus humbled himself by becoming a human, that humans might be redeemed and restored to their relationship with God. Jesus took on the role of a slave to humanity so that he might redeem humanity. And remember that time that Jesus, the God of the universe, washed the stink off of his disciples' feet. And he did that. He became a servant to break down the barrier between the elites and the working class and everyone in between. Remember how he saw women frequently over and over again in the scriptures as fully human, not as second-class citizens like the Greeks and Romans did. And remember how Jesus honored the children in a world where children were seen as mere property. They could literally, a, a father of a Roman family could kill a son or daughter until they came of age and it wouldn't even be murder. It would just be like, that's his right. And that happened. And that's why we dedicate children and hold them up. Because of Christ. That's not a human motive. That's not, that doesn't come out of the best thinking from Greeks and Romans, as, as great as we think they are. And they did give us a lot of good things. Human rights ain't one of the things that they gave us. And we often associate the work of Jesus as his sacrifice on the cross and the forgiveness of sin for the world. And that is praiseworthy and true. But Jesus... Even before the cross, Jesus lived a life of sacrifice. His whole choosing to be born as a human was maybe a bigger sacrifice than death at all. I mean, that is such a humiliating thing to be part of the, the triune God in perfect in power and love and then to, to become a human baby. 
His lifestyle was a sacrifice of status and privilege. His ministry, his relationships, his way of being was at one and the same time a sacrifice of status and privilege. And did you notice that Jesus is always fulfilled? He lives a full life. He lives a life of love and joy and meaning and purpose. He makes people's lives better around him. Like Jesus lives the anti-American dream and he's happier than most of us. So Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Look upon him, see that his way is good. Get out your bubble mower and follow him. Be like him. But there's more, because this passage isn't primarily about doing stuff or the attitude that we have, or even, it's not even primarily, primarily about mimicking Jesus. The passage is all about God. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? To the glory of God the Father. It's all to the glory of God. Now, does that passage sound at all familiar? I mean, from somewhere besides Philippians 2? I mean, Dave read, Dave read that quote from Isaiah 45, just moments before I started preaching. And Isaiah 45 is all about God. It's about God the Father and his glory and his promise to rescue people who have been oppressed by the nations. And these nations who had oppressed the Israelites had given up following God, and they began to place their allegiance in idols of wood and stone and metal. Idols who represent deities who did things like endorse racism and murder and oppression and child sacrifice. And Isaiah 45 is about the Father, God, coming to rescue and to humble those nations who think that they're the masters of their own destiny and that no one is ever going to hear the cries of the murdered and the cries of the enslaved and the cries of the oppressed in their path. And it is at the name of Yahweh, the Lord, the Father, that every knee will eventually bow. That is, when the Lord comes, the veil of people's self-deception will be lifted and those who make themselves out to be the masters of the world will face God. That's what Isaiah 45 is about. And what Paul is saying, and what the early church came to believe after the resurrection of Jesus and after studying the scriptures, is that Jesus is that God. That Jesus is that God in Isaiah 45. That, that God to whom the whole uh, the created order will one day bow is not some tyrant or angry deity like some have made him out to be. No, God the Father is Jesus. And the Jesus we see in the four Gospels is not angry, and he's not nasty, and he's not bigoted, and he doesn't show favorites, right? That's what God is like. That's what Paul's on about. Whew. God is the one who became human. God is the one who died on a cross. God is the one who emptied himself of privilege and made himself like a slave and came to redeem creation. That is what true power looks like. And that's what love looks like. And you know what else that looks like? That's what human beings are supposed to look like. From the first chapter 
of the first book of the Bible, we learn that human beings are creatures made in the image of God. And the prototypical human beings, image bearers of God in the Bible, are this couple, Adam and Eve. They're made in God's image. They're entrusted to rule over the created order in a way that reflects God's character back into the world and his creativity and his beauty and his power and his wisdom. That's their job. And God gave these humans, us, incredible agency to influence the world. And humans do what they want to do. And very early on in the narrative, like it doesn't tell us how many years or epics or anything like that, just very early on in the narrative, we learn that Adam and Eve desire to use their made in the image of Godness to their own advantage. They seek to usurp God by taking the forbidden fruit as an act of rebellion, and their desire was for selfish gain. And from then on, the world is beginning to fall apart at human hands. We just keep messing it up. And then there comes this man who's not only made in God's image, but he's God in the flesh. And this man, rather than grasping at power and utilizing his power, he submits his power and privilege to the, uh, the human project to serving the Father and being a blessing to the world. And this man restores brokenness and heals sickness and redeems relationships, and through his sacrifice of life and death, he brings new life. And Jesus desires the way of the Father, but he also shows us what we're made for. He shows us what we're made to desire, the way of Jesus, the way of living to be a blessing to other people. The hallmark holiday of Father's Day is always a mixed bag of joys and sorrows, but let's consider, let's, let's let it be a source of joy for all of us as we consider that we are sons and daughters of the Father. Let us get our bubble mowers out and put on his oversized clothes and follow in his footsteps, not because it will earn his love, but because he is always faithful in his love toward us, and that is what draws us to want to be like him. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this picture of who you are in Christ. Thank you for Paul who paints this picture for us to encourage us. Thank you for awesome piano solos like that. That's great. <laughs> no, Lord, we, we pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would bend our will and desire to want what is true and beautiful and good, to want to be like Jesus. Thank you for your grace with us. Amen.